You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Paramaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you today, Prashant. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Doing well. Um, and uh, I think keeping in our themes for the f- last few episodes, we'll we'll make this one a two-parter episode again. Uh, so for our listeners, we'll talk a little bit in the first part of this podcast about the situation in Afghanistan, particularly U.S. policy right now, and the possibility of a deal with the Taliban. There's a lot of uncertainty around the final contours of a deal. We've had some uncertainty about the extent to which the U.S. troop presence in the country will be will be reduced, including uh, comments by President Trump that a post-deal environment in Afghanistan might still include as many as 8,600 U.S. troops, which is actually higher than the 8,400 that were in the country at the end of the Obama administration. And uh, after we wrap up the conversation on Afghanistan, we'll move a, we'll move over a little bit and we'll talk a little bit about some nuclear, not quite saber rattling, but high level comments that have come in on nuclear policy from both India and Pakistan. As, uh, as listeners might be aware, the two countries are currently in a little bit of a crisis given uh, India's decision in August to change the status of Kashmir. And uh, there have been a few high-level pronouncements on nuclear policy. So we'll talk a little bit about what that means, uh, what what has changed, what hasn't changed. So yeah, Prashant, I guess we got a lot on the agenda. But um, I guess to kick this off, where you know where where do we really stand right now on U.S. policy towards Afghanistan? We've had a lot of reports about the possibility of a deal. Uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, the American envoy that's been negotiating with the Taliban. Uh, was looking to get a deal by September 1st. That was the deadline that Mike Pompeo had sort of said he was hoping to have a complete deal, uh, you know, ready to be signed by the president and the Taliban by that date. That didn't happen, obviously. And as we record this today on Friday, September 6th, Khalilzad is back in Doha, Qatar, talking to uh, representatives of the Taliban again. And of course, there have, you know, just been another attack. And we've just seen American personnel die um, and an attack outside the American and NATO headquarters in Kabul. So the prospects of a deal look rather uncertain. Um, but I'm curious, I mean, um, you know, what do you uh, what do you make of where we stand right now with the Taliban? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really good summary of, you know, this, this sort of continuation of a, a seemingly endless debate about how the United States should calibrate its presence and, and U.S. policy in Afghanistan. It's it's now America's longest war, effectively. Um, and the, the debate essentially has been surrounding, you know, the two extremes, right, as, as with a lot of these debates. So if we have too heavy of a footprint, that sort of over-militarizes a kind of non-military problem, right? This is eventually about peace and diplomacy and making sure that Afghanistan remains a stable state in spite of the fact that that has been an elusive concept for for decades and decades, even before the United States was there. And, you know, too light of a footprint and, you know, that there's these nightmare scenarios about, you know, instability, descent into civil war and another, you know, 9-11 style attack. And we have, you know, looming on the horizon, uh, you know, an upcoming U.S. election where, you know, President Donald Trump will be um, running for re-election. And so this is a very sensitive time as events on the ground, as you noted, right? So each individual attack sort of sparks this debate and, you know, flurry of media stories about, oh no, if the United States withdraws too quickly and, and um, does so carelessly, you know, that could undermine U.S. security interests. But on the other hand, if you look at the structural variables here, so declining public support in the United States for uh, the war in Afghanistan for years, uh, Trump himself is not really somebody who's very fond of 
military intervention. I mean, I think he, you know, wants to sort of, he's worried about looking tough and making sure, you know, the U.S. is involved, but I don't think he wants, uh, you know, the the sort of uh, actual commitment that comes along with it, including on resources. So, you know, he could declare the United States as, you know, him as being the one who withdrew the United States from Afghanistan, even though President Obama was the one who said that, you know, he would do so. So that would give him an easy political win. But I think that's kind of where we are. I mean, like you said, we don't have a clear sense about what the contours of an actual deal would be. Um, and there's big concerns about, you know, even if there is a deal and we get a U.S. exit, what does that mean for actual peace in Afghanistan and regional stability? I think that's the big question that's still unanswered. Yeah. And, um, you know, just to just to complicate matters further. Uh, so we do have planned presidential elections in Afghanistan for the end of this month. That's right. The end of September. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're already you know, one week into the month, and there's a lot of uncertainty about this election. Um, you know, if a deal is finalized, is the Taliban going to participate politically? That was sort of long, a long-standing objective in Afghanistan is to transition the Taliban um, into a political process whereby it can participate in, in Afghan democracy effectively. That remains very much uncertain. And of course, you know, the ability of the Taliban to actually function as a cohesive and unitary actor, I think, is really something that has come under question. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen recent attacks um, claimed by the official spokesperson of the Taliban. So clearly they are taking responsibility for many of these recent attacks in Afghanistan while they're talking to the United States. But there is longstanding concern that even after a deal is finalized, um, and by the way, the, uh, you know, the American interest, as you just said, is to pres- is to prevent the resurgence of Afghanistan turning into a safe haven for terrorist groups hostile to the United States, broadly speaking. So the Taliban's um, sort of constraints there, I think, are, are fairly limited. And the Afghan government is obviously, I think, less than pleased with sort of that nature of um, this deal that's that's shaping up here. But there are other questions, too. I mean, the Islamic State, um, you mm-hmm. know, the future of that group in Afghanistan remains very much uncertain. What happens to Islamic State Khorasan, which is what the Islamic State calls its province in Afghanistan after the United States potentially withdraws? What happens to groups that operate across the Afghan-Pakistan border, like the Haqqani Network that the U.S. has very serious concerns about? Do they um, respond uh, differently in a post-deal environment? Um, so these questions, I think, really remain very much um, uncertain at this point. Um, I mean, on the issue of the political transition, though, I think the Afghan government's concerns are are well-placed because, uh, I mean, you know, like you said, the, the basis here for a peaceful political transition looks to be rather slim. Uh, I mm-hmm. think the Taliban is probably an opportunistically seize on any American decline to try to accomplish what it's been trying to accomplish for the past, you know, um, nearly 20 years, which is to overthrow the Afghan government. So that, you know, doesn't leave me all too optimistic at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think the the point you made about the dynamics of the Taliban, you know, that's that's a really important point to keep in mind, because I think we really don't know how that's going to play out once the situation and the broader balance of power in Afghanistan changes. I think, you know, you look at a lot of media accounts, the the sort of very quick take is that, you know, the Taliban militarily is in a very strong position, um, at least, you know, the strongest position it's been in a decade, if, if not since 2001, in terms of, you know, the, the extent of territory in which they control and so on and so forth. But, you know, it remains to be seen how much of that is due to the fact that, you know, the Taliban is for now, at least in this formation, in a certain political environment relative to the Afghan government and the U.S. presence. I mean, if that goes away and we see shifting variables, we really don't know how these things are going to look like. And as you noted as well, 
this is something that you know even though we we talk about it sometimes as you know the us has a has a very strong role in in afghanistan there are other really important actors as well i mean this is afghanistan's long been a place where it's been a playground for major powers often through to their detriment right and so it really sets up an interesting question about how this affects broader regional stability trends as well yeah i mean i think i think the region has broadly been preparing for this eventuality since 2014 uh, a lot of afghanistan's neighbors including countries like you know india pakistan iran china russia mm-hmm. um really took the prospect of a us withdrawal uh, actually quite seriously under the obama administration even though it didn't happen and then the trump administration obviously surged in 2017 um, modestly. So I think, yeah, I mean, uh, many of these countries have been preparing. Uh, I know, for for instance, in China and India, it's been a major uh, cause for concern that Afghanistan will become a, a hotbed of um, planning for terrorist groups um, wanting to operate on, on their soil. So that's been a source of concern for a while. You know, the mm-hmm. other issue um, is, I think, I think, you know, as you said earlier, politically, I think there's a lot riding on Trump becoming, you know, the president, quote, to end, you know, to finally end the the United Mm -hmm. States longest war in Afghanistan. Uh, So I think I think we should, you know, look for signs that something like that might happen, even though Trump and uh, General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, recently said that the withdrawal is probably not going to be uh, complete. And uh, the New York Times recently reported that the initial withdrawal would evolve um, would involve the removal of about of around 5,400 troops. So yeah, going back to that sort of end Obama level troop presence. So I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of um, uncertainty here, and it's actually really uncertain. Even if the Taliban has agreed to a draft deal, uh, there have been comments from Taliban officials that they haven't, despite the fact that U.S. sources are saying that they have. So <laughs> I, I wouldn't really you know hold my breath for uh, things to really finalize or materialize by the end of this month. Again, I'd love to be proven wrong because. Uh, you know, having having this withdrawal take place, having Afghan elections take place on time, um, I think would be a positive development, even if, uh, you know, we can't really count on the Taliban to uh, behave as a uh, responsible and peaceful group after a U.S. withdrawal. But uh, but yeah, yeah, I think I think there's very little telling, uh, you know, what might happen in the in the coming weeks. OK. And so the, the other issue we were going to talk about is, um, you know, another uh, development that's significant in South Asia, which is, I, I guess, the original impetus was this was uh, developments in mid-August, where we saw uh, the Indian Defense Minister Rajnath Singh uh, be just the latest official, but the highest-ranking official to date, to cast doubt about uh, the sustainability and future prospects of India's uh, so-called no-first-use uh, posture. Uh, significant comments since he delivered them uh, in an anniversary marking the death of former Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee, who basically oversaw India's rise as a nuclear power back in 1998. And he did so in Pokhran, where India had detonated those nuclear devices that essentially brought it into sort of the nuclear era, right? Um, And we've discussed this on the podcast previously in terms of India-Pakistan tensions and the fact that these are two nuclear armed powers. Um, but it seems like this uh, represents uh, the fact that we have a high-ranking official and the highest-ranking official to date uh, say this, uh, and the fact that we have India-Pakistan tensions, as we've discussed before on this podcast, at such a high level, um, it really does uh, seem to indicate that this is a pretty significant development. So you wrote about this uh, for us uh, at The Diplomat, and you've written a lot about uh, India-Pakistan nuclear dynamics more generally. How should listeners understand the broader significance about what's happened in the context of what we've seen previously? 
Sure. Um, so I think I think this is a pretty interesting uh, development. Uh, I would say the you know the main significance of these comments by the Indian Defense Minister is that I think it really represents the final hollowing out of India's no first use policy. Um, mm-hmm. India's India's two main nuclear adversaries, China and Pakistan, have never really fully believed that India had a no first use policy. The Indians don't believe China's no first use policy is credible either, um, mm-hmm. even though China does actually uh, do things to its nuclear forces to try and make it more credible by sort of separating warheads and missiles separately in peacetime, conducting uh, exercises as if a nuclear attack has already taken place, things like that. Uh, the mm-hmm. Indians don't do that. In fact, India's 2003 nuclear doctrine even includes a carve out saying that India reserves the right to use nuclear weapons um, in in exchange for um, biological and chemical weapons attacks. But uh, yeah, so Rajnath Singh, I mean, he is the highest ranking um, Indian official to cast doubt in this manner on no first use. His predecessor, uh, a few defense ministers ago, uh, Manohar Parikar, also, also with the BJP, um, cast doubt on no first use uh, during Modi's first term in office, but then he quickly clarified that he was speaking in his own personal capacity. Of course, there's no such thing when you're the defense minister, uh, especially mm-hmm. a defense minister talking about nuclear policy. But but yeah, I mean, uh, the BJP also in its 2014 election manifesto said that it would review and update India's nuclear doctrine. It didn't include that promise in the 2019 manifesto, but obviously with Rajnath Singh's comment, um, it appears that that still remains on the table. So what exactly did he say? He said that until today, India's nuclear policy has been no first use. And then he went on to say what happens in the future depends on the circumstances. So that I think, you know, in itself um, is, is as far as you can really get from an unequivocal no first use posture. Uh, he's effectively mm-hmm. saying, you know, it's not a it's not an update to the doctrine, but I think it creates enough ambiguity that if you're Pakistan or China, you pretty much feel vindicated for not taking this pledge all too seriously for a while. Um, and, you know, I mean, the the context in which he brought this up is interesting, right? You noted that this was uh, the one year death anniversary of Atal Bihari Vajpayee. Uh, and the broader context of Rajnath Singh's remarks, I think, are are sort of revealing because he talks about how Vajpayee sort of, uh, you know, stewarded India into um, into its uh, its nuclear status today, and he says that you know India owes a lot to Vajpayee for for making sure that that happened in the way that it did. But now he sort of indicates that you know India is entering a new era, um, and and you know I mean. Uh, the other dynamic that's relevant here is that no first use for India when it was announced in 2003 and sort of debated in the early 2000s and late 1990s, um, part of the consideration was uh, normalizing India's nuclear status a little bit, right? In, in 2005, we had the U.S.-India nuclear deal, and something like no first use was an attempt by India to really show that, look, we're a responsible nuclear power. We're not going to brandish the nuclear sword in South Asia and cause crises, uh, unlike the Pakistanis, who obviously retain a first use posture. Uh, but now, you know, in 2019, uh, tw- going into 2020, India's in a very different place. Um, its its nuclear status has largely been normalized. Uh, it does benefit uh, from a waiver from the nuclear suppliers group, for instance. Its membership there is still pending. Um, but I think it's an open question now with these comments from Rajnath saying how much the BJP is actually going to focus on that going forward. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, overall, I think, uh, I think yeah, this is... Um, this is an interesting uh, sort of watershed moment for India's no first use. And as you said, I mean, it, it's coming at a time of heightened India-Pakistan tensions. Uh, you know, there's a possibility that the Pakistanis were doing something, possibly in Kashmir, the Indians had intelligence. And this comment by Rajnath Singh was sort of an attempt to tell the Pakistanis, look, I wouldn't try anything because, you know, we're a nuclear power. And we saw this kind of nuclear signaling also in February when the Indians and the Pakistanis had a small skirmish uh 
across the line of control in Kashmir when the Pakistanis said, uh, or at least the Pakistani military said, that the National Command Authority, which is the um, the apex body des- uh, uh, deciding on the use of nuclear weapons in Pakistan, had met, uh, you know, again, attempting to suggest to the Indians then that, you know, look, we have nuclear weapons. Uh, I wouldn't try anything if I were you. So nuclear signaling is, is very much uh, back in South Asia in, in 2019. And I think that should, uh, you know, not be something that we take too lightly. Yeah. And I think the, the other question uh, that, that, is, that is an interesting one to, to, to sort of talk about is depending on, you know, what sort of stories you, you, you know, you've been reading or what accounts you've been reading with respect to what has happened so far on, on uh, nuclear first use, um, there seems to be a question about, you know, how much of this is about politics and how much of this is about policy? So in, in some accounts, there, there's sort of a, you know, a tendency to say, well, this is in line with, you know, sort of Modi's idea of a more muscular and assertive India, you know, the strike on Pakistan that we've talked about on this podcast, the bifurcation of Kashmir. Um, you know, this is something which, um, you know, the rhetoric is 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 very strong. But, um, you know, as you noted in the piece um, that you wrote, um, this is something that has, you know, really important implications policy wise as well. Right. So. If you look at the changing uh, balance of power dynamics uh, with respect to how both of these countries have been thinking about nuclear issues, um, you know, Pakistan, on the one hand, has been trying to lower the nuclear threshold, right, by developing lower yield nuclear weapons and so on and so forth and using terrorists. And then the Indians have sort of, I, I think, in response, sort of said, well, if you're going to do that, then we have to think about uh, various ways and avenues for us to adjust our posture. So maybe we should think about, you know, how can we target Pakistan's nuclear arsenal? And if you, you know, follow those tit for tat dynamics, you know, the Pakistanis would then say, well, if you're going to try to target our nuclear arsenal, we're going to develop more nuclear weapons and position them in different places. And then the Indians, it would seem like for both India and Pakistan, if you have an actual scenario where violence breaks out and they consider nuclear options, there would be a contest for both sides to use uh, to to actually use nuclear weapons or at least disable the other country from taking the options that they're thinking about. So this is something that it seems to me that there's a political aspect to this. But, you know, in terms of policy-wise, this is a pretty significant development too, right? Yeah, no, I mean, you're getting at, um, you're getting at sort of a very uh, important part of this whole uh, debate. Um, and actually, I mean, the uh, uh, the authoritative account on this, uh, you know, was written by a couple of friends of mine, um, Avipad Narang at MIT and Chris Clary at the University of Albany, a couple political scientists uh, looking at India's sort of Temptations on the counterforce side. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, India has been making investments over over the past two decades since a nuclear breakout in 1998 that are are giving it a a much better shot at dealing with Pakistan's nuclear arsenal uh, before the Pakistanis are able to use nuclear weapons in a crisis. Of course, um, you know what I think should be made clear is that. Um, Observing that India might be abandoning no first use or rendering no first use less credible doesn't mean that India should do that, right? It's it's, it's going mm-hmm. to be a very, I think, dangerous development if India does move away from no first use um, and uh, potentially very destabilizing if the Pakistanis do sense that the Indians are explicitly planning to uh, take out their nuclear arsenal in a crisis. I think that raises the sort of so-called use and lose pressures for Pakistan um, and makes the possibility of a nuclear war a lot more likely. So obviously, you know, nobody's 
hoping for that to happen. Um, but yeah, certainly there are signs that the Indians are investing in these capabilities. So, uh, so if listeners are interested in that, I think we actually, um, I think I did a podcast um, a couple of years ago with um, with Vipin mm-hmm. on, on that topic. Um, that might be an interesting um, one to go listen to. Otherwise, there is the international security article, which goes into um, the the sort of strategic rationale and um, and the capabilities that India has been developing. Uh, all of which, all of which, yeah, I mean, it it looks rather convincing to me. I think I think it's very difficult to make the case that the Indians haven't been at least tempted by this idea. Um, it's it's another question altogether whether they'll actually choose to uh, make this part of their strategy or if this is part of causing Pakistan to simply you know, panic a little bit, spend more on its own nuclear arsenal. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, the Pakistanis are under a great degree of uh, fiscal stress right now. So that in itself might be a uh, a rather um, promising avenue for New Delhi to go down, even if it does raise nuclear dangers in South Asia. Yeah, I, I think one one last question for you before we close. I mean, it, it, all, it also has been interesting just sort of observing the dynamics on the Pakistani side, right? Where Imran Khan has come out and you know sort of delivered uh, his comments on Pakistani policy, and then he's been contradicted depending on which account that you read um, by the Pakistani military. And there's always these concerns on the Pakistani side about civil military dynamics when whenever you have a civilian leader and how that affects things like command and control. Which you know we can talk about it you know very theoretically and academically, um, but in practice uh, we actually don't you know, wouldn't have a clear sense about how that would actually play out in reality, right? Yeah, I mean, so Imran Khan broadly, you know, has very little to say about when Pakistani nuclear weapons would be used. That's very much in the realm of the Pakistani military, which broadly oversees um, the country's uh, stewardship of nuclear weapons and um, and the command and control mechanisms. Uh, of course, the prime minister is nominally in the loop under the National Command Authority. Uh, yeah, there was some concern, I guess, uh, just a few days ago, um, Imran Khan was speaking um, in Lahore, and he made a remark that was, in my view, mistranslated and misreported initially in the Western press as Pakistan mm-hmm. sort of um, moving towards nuclear first use, which is, you know, frankly ridiculous because Pakistan's uh, nuclear strategy is is firmly, firmly based in first use, right? That's what the Pakistanis do. They uh, they um, account for their conventional inferiority against India by relying uh, disproportionately on the use of nuclear weapons early in a crisis. And uh, low-yield nuclear weapons allow them to do that um, in a, um, you know, in a particularly credible way, um, at least from the Indian perspective. So what did Imran Khan say? You know, he said that, you know, Indian, India and Pakistan are nuclear-armed neighbors, so right now tensions are high, and that really creates um, great risk. And, you know, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times sort of comparing the uh, the uh, right-wing Indian government to, uh, you know, the Nazis and saying that they couldn't be trusted with nuclear weapons. So this is clearly part of the Pakistani talking points now after after the um, Indian decision to uh, change the status of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, but so, you know, Imran Khan went on in his remarks to um, say that, you know, he was he was telling the audience that Pakistan won't be the first to start a conflict. But that was sort of mis- mistranslated as, uh, you know, Imran Khan saying Pakistan wouldn't be the first to use nuclear weapons. And then um, immediately after that, the Pakistani Foreign Office uh, came out and clarified that there's no change in Pakistan's nuclear policy. And then the military clarified that Pakistan doesn't have a no first use policy in case, uh, you know, anyone were to get the wrong idea. Uh, the report was picked up um, and actually redisseminated with the um, with the headline that Imran Khan was pledging no first use. I'm not sure if this is still, uh, you know, part of the perception. Um, broadly speaking, because a lot of people don't really pay close attention to things like translations. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, in my view, he certainly didn't say anything of the sort. 
All right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Prashant, I think um, I think we'll uh, end it there for today. How does that sound? Sounds good. Great. Uh, so, for listeners, thanks a lot for uh, tuning into the podcast. Before we conclude, I do want to include a note from our sponsor. So, this episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can uh, catch up with uh, future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, you can go ahead and do that on uh, either iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers. We really appreciate it. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you have any suggestions for future topics you'd like for us to address on the podcast, uh, do just shoot either me or Prashant a note. We'd be very happy to take that into consideration for uh, future episodes. So uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.